Thanks for listening to the Imago Day podcast. If you live in the Portland area, we'd love to invite you into the life of our community. You can find out what's going on at idcpdx.com slash events or on social media at Imago Day PDX. Today's teaching text is from Haggai 1 verses 1 through 9. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house lies, while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. When was the last time that you had to revisit your priorities? When was the last time that you had to take a look at what you thought was most important and rearrange it? Maybe that was January 1st. For a lot of people, the new year brings to light new ways to prioritize your life. Or maybe it was last week because something happened. Some of us received diagnosis uh, about our health, and it rearranges our priorities. Some of us go through an event at work, and it rearranges and has us rethink our priorities. My event happened three and a half weeks ago when we gave birth to our second child, my daughter Blair, who I'll introduce you here. Yeah. That'll make you think about your priorities. Um, when we had my first son, Jude, four years ago, I remember it completely blowing up my life, but in a totally different way. Now I've had a son and now I've had a daughter and I got to tell you, it hits different. It hits different, the girl, you know? When my son came out, I was like, start a business. He was a week old. I was like, develop an app or something. It's time to get going, son. When she came out, I said, what do you need? What do you want? I'll give you anything. Do you want a Mercedes? I'm a pastor, and I shouldn't have a Mercedes, but I'll get you one. I, whatever you want, uh, it hit different. It helped. It kind of messed with my priorities. It's rearranged this. Um, thank you for your prayers. Uh, all is well in our home. Uh, you know, the Blair is happy and healthy. My wife is happy and healthy. We are all happy and healthy. Jude is being a great big brother. Life is good in the Nye House. All is good. It just has hit us in such a cool way. Like, man, 
the priority that our children take in our life and that family takes in our life. Having kids is one of those moments that has you just change how you think about life. But also some of you have been in seasons where you've had your kids leave the house and that also has changed your priorities in your life. You're like, you know, your room is becoming my office. Um, Transitions make us evaluate what we hold most dear. And our church here at Imago has been in a year of transition. And I want to just remind us of that periodically here in the first full year. I became lead pastor here in September, and this church is certainly still in the throes of a good transition, just a a different set of um, kind of priorities are to be maybe evaluated. And our, our church too is in a kind of larger scope of like the church nationally, which the church nationally, I would say, is also in a season of transition. What do I mean by that? I just mean that Christianity in America is going through a new wave of priority making since the pandemic, I would say since the 2020 election and the 2016 election, since the political turmoil of our nation, the church has been faced with what do we prioritize? And guess what? It is February 4th of the year 2024, which means, yes, there's an Olympics, there's also an election. And I, did I just kill the mood? I showed a picture of my daughter and then I mentioned the election I killed the mood. It's okay. We'll recover. Um, but I want to I want to bring that up to say that the church, I think, is also facing this moment as it heads into an election year of like, what will it prioritize? Because throughout many election cycles, the church has capitulated towards political ideologies and has kind of melded its message into political messaging and made the priorities of the election the priorities of the church. Seasons of transition are, are, are um, sensitive times where we're asking, what is most important? And I think it's in thinking about transitions and priorities and even political turmoil that has brought me to this little Old Testament book called Haggai. No, it's not in the Book of Mormon. This is in your Bible. If you're like, I've never even heard that word before. Did he make it up? No, it's... It just takes up two pages in my Bible. It's a very short book, very, very short book in the Old Testament. It's a minor prophet. And I've been thinking about his ministry, this little prophet, because he, Haggai, and Zechariah, another smaller prophetic book in the Old Testament, that one's about 12 chapters long, though, less uh, harder to ignore, I'd say. They were the prophetic voices during the time when the people of God were returning from captivity. They were in a time of immense transition. They were moving from being captured as political exiles in the kingdom of Babylon and moving back to their homeland in Jerusalem where their city was wasted. It was lied in waste. It was in ruins. And if you read the historical books of Ezra and Nehemiah, those are more popular Old Testament books. They tell narratives of the people of God returning to their homeland and building up the political infrastructure and the civic infrastructure of Jerusalem. They're building houses and temples and all, and the temple Uh, all all these important structures. And Ezra and Nehemiah are kind of the chief operating officers of the project and really the spiritual leaders as well. But all all throughout God's people, their history, they've always had prophetic voices that are critiquing and, and encouraging and imploring and rebuking the leadership. And that's what Haggai and Zechariah were doing during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Haggai was... Uh, was kind of the recipient of the prophetic ministry that happened with Ezekiel and Daniel. Those were the, mini- those were the prophets that were, that were uh, during the, the captivity. When the people came back, 
it was Haggai and Zechariah. And it says this in the book of Ezra, during the narrative of the people of God coming back and building the temple again, it says that the elders of the Jews or the people of God, so really the key leaders of the people of God built, and look at this, they also prospered through the prophesying of this book we're going to look at for two weeks, Haggai and the prophet Zechariah, the son of Edo. They finished their building by the decree of God of Israel and the political leaders of the time. They prospered through the prophesying of this little prophet. And I have been thinking a lot in the last couple months about Haggai for some reason, because I knew that this prophet was one who spoke during a time of rebuilding and who spoke during a time of transition. But I've also been thinking about him because there's a reason his book is so short. Do you want to know why? It's so short because it's one of the few times that the people of God heard the prophecy and just did what the prophet said. That's why the book's over. The rest of the books of the prophets, you you go to Isaiah, it's 66 flipping chapters long. Why is it so long? Because God's like, you're not hearing me. Here's what I mean. Correct injustice. Fight for the oppressed. Write your ways. Quit with your crazy festivals while you're diluting the civic infrastructure of your life. Ah, in Haggai, the word comes to the people. The people receive it and they get to work. And then the book's over. I think that there's something beautiful about the purity of heart that the people of Israel had here. And I want to call our church to the pure response that the people have to this book. And I think that hearing these prophetic words might ring from Israel's landscape over to ours pretty well. And maybe we at Imago in 2024 can do the same thing the people of God did in Ezra and Nehemiah's time, to quote Ezra, to prosper through the prophesying. To prosper through the prophesying. Usually prophecy is about hearing hard words and being corrected. But sometimes it's about hearing a life-giving invitation, saying yes and watching your life succeed. Uh, This is a time in America where the church is certainly rebuilding and trying to find its priorities. We're in a time of transition here at Imago. We're entering into an election year. What better time than to ask the question Haggai is asking us, which is this, what do we prioritize And what does God prioritize? And how do those things match up? Because most of us around here, we could all say our priorities. We all have these catchphrases we use, you know, God first, family second, work third. Or we say family first. Or we have all these different catchphrases we use to uh, kind of communicate our own priorities. But when was the last time you thought, what does God prioritize? What's the most important thing to God right now? Haggai has this phrase, you heard it twice in our reading in just the first chapter of Haggai. He has this phrase he uses a lot, and it's the phrase, consider your ways. In two chapters, he uses it three times, and he employs this term, it's this short little Hebrew phrase that's packed with prophetic meaning, consider your ways. One of the best things I can do as your pastor is to just join with the word of God to say, Let's consider our ways together in 2024. Let's really think through our priorities. Haggai gives us today three considerations to start, and then we'll just continue next week with the second chapter 
and receive God's word in a fresh, fresh way. Here's his three considerations. The first consideration is he's asking us to consider our returns on our investments. You heard it in the, in the reading Amy read so beautifully today. Consider your ways, Haggai says. And then he gives this a few images. He says, you've sown much and you've harvested little. This is because the people of God, when they got back to Jerusalem and the whole city was in ruins, the first thing they did was they set up little homestead farms, really. These small individualized communities where they could farm the land for themselves. Then they didn't set it up in a way that networked the different um, crop systems, but they were really just trying to do their own little thing. Build their house, make their farm, live on their land. It was an individualized pursuit. And they realized that that strategy had led to little returns. They weren't getting returns on the investments that they were doing. They were really looking out for their own well-being before they looked out for the community's well-being. So Haggai says, you've sown much, you've harvested little. Little is the operative word here. It's like the people had so little to show in proportion to the investment that they gave of time, of energy, and of capital. There's just so little to show for all that they had done. He says, you drink, but you never have your fill. All of these images, he also has this image of like, you're putting things into a bag, if you remember this from the teaching text, putting things into a bag. There's holes in it though. At the end of the day, you're not able to hold on to anything that you're producing. What Haggai's describing is essentially what sin feels like in our experience. Sin is, I know, a very Bible church word, but it's such an important word. You know, in all of our creative rhetoric that we're getting into in the 21st century and how Christians are starting to communicate with each other, we cannot lose the biblical terms because the biblical terms hold in themselves a weight of meaning. Sin is a very important word for us to understand. It's not just, the Bible talks about sin in in the way that we often talk about it, like moral misdeeds, you know, like um, you lied, that was a sin, you stole, that was a sin. But the Bible has a larger imagination about that word to say, it really describes, that term describes the existential despair you feel about being alienated from your creator. And really sin is described in the prophets like this. Like you're planting all these seeds and nothing's coming up. You're drinking and you're still parched. You know, that's what it feels like to be alienated from your creator. Micah 6.15, Hosea 4.10, Zephaniah 1.13, these are all other prophetic references that use the same exact metaphor. Like you've harvested a ton, but you're not really feeling the harvest you've put in. Look at famously, here's Jeremiah from chapter two, verse 11. God says this through Jeremiah, but my people, they've changed their glory for that which does not profit. They have forsaken me. God's saying me, the fountain of living waters. He's like, they've forsaken me, the one who gives tons of water. And here's what they've done instead. They've hewed out or carved out or formed cisterns or or, or jars for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's what sin feels like. And all of us in this room have felt that way in modern life. We feel like the things we're doing for our family is not bringing back the return it should. Or the work we give at work 
doesn't really, we get the paycheck and it's like, I just don't even know if that was really worth it. Or we volunteer to try to contribute to the good of our city and we just still see so much despair in our city. It's like the good that we do only has such little return. The feeling, eh, I was trying to think about what, what modern, smaller thing could it be like? It's kind of like the paper straw, you know? The eco-friendly iced coffee cup. I've never wanted more in my life to enjoy Portland iced coffee and been unable to do so in the eco-friendly cup. I don't know, it's not user error because I see you do it all the time. I see people walking around and drink and it just drips. Like it, it, the lid doesn't fit on the, do you know what I'm saying? It's, I want so badly to receive the beauty of Portland iced coffee, but the eco-friendly cup, we haven't gotten there technologically. But here's why the metaphor works even deeper because the eco-friendly thing and the paper straw is a great answer to the despair of the climate, Right? Like, the climate is really the problem. The climate is the thing we've screwed up. That's really the fracture of sin that has existed in this world, that we have not taken care of the planet that God has given us. And so we're sitting in this environment that's really struggling, that's terrible, right? It's in this, we're in this crisis. And so we've invented these things to try to answer the climate crisis, but it's only led to more despair. <laughs> it's only led to someone drinking coffee and being like, I think my straw is my coffee now, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so the next time you have that moment with the paper straw, just look to the heavens and say, this is what alienation from God feels like. This is sin. This is sin. I'm sitting on an earth that is in a climate crisis, and the only response we were able to do as human beings is to provide something that doesn't work and creates more misery. That's what sin feels like. Sin feels like trying to give a good answer to a bad thing and only creating more frustration. Isn't this modern life? Losses that we're trying to disguise as gains. Like bring your bag to the grocery store. It'll help the climate. And you do that, Religiously, even fundamentally, you look at other people and judge them with their paper bag. Go, oh, they don't love the planet. But then you just keep living and you go, I think it's still getting worse. That is what alienation and sin feels like. It feels like, I remember this guy in the Bay Area when I was pastoring in the Silicon Valley, tech guy, made more money than he'd ever made in his life at that point. He was my age. I don't know, we were maybe 30 at the time. And he says to me, Chris, I've never made more money and I, I don't feel a, 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 even a centimeter richer. You know, I've never made more money and I don't feel richer. The way prosperity works in this country works the same way, right? That the, even the more we get, the less we really gain from what we get. Or we fill our lives, maybe we don't have the money and we're just kind of struggling to get by or we just have, hey, we have this decent job we're trying to pay, so we fill our schedules. But then our schedules are full of things that aren't really returning on the investments. Like, we're doing so many things. Our calendar is full, but kind of at the end of the week, we look at it and we just go, I, I don't really know if I got anything out of this week. I was just taking kids to different practices, this is um, Gia Tolentino. She's a writer in The New Yorker. I love this quote from her book of essays, Trick Mirror. It's very easy 
Under the conditions of artificial but continually escalating obligation, that's how I describe adulthood, by the way, continually escalating obligation, to find yourself organizing your life around practices you find ridiculous and possibly indefensible. <laughs> it's so easy in modern life to be filled with investments that give zero return to harvest a ton and reap very little, to drink, to not be satisfied, to put things into containers that are empty. Here's my question for you. How would you know, it's a genuine question, how would you know that what you're currently prioritizing is actually giving you Jesus' life-giving spirit and not quenching it? How would you know? How would you know that what you're prioritizing is actually giving you the life-giving spirit of Jesus Christ and not quenching it. The Bible's very clear. You, we, can, we can quench the spirit of God in our lives. We can actually live a life that Scripture defines as without power, lacking power. That we can live a life that is filled with Christian activity, filled with good social activity, filled with good political activity, and that ultimately lack power. Because many of us are simply responding to scheduling and financial pressures that modern capitalist society has granted to us. And we have not done what Haggai has told us to do. Consider your ways. Consider the way that you're living. Because you may just be receiving more loss than gain. And so then the invitation that Haggai has is this, not just consider the returns on your investments and the way that you might be succumbing to modern pressures of life, but consider your place in redemptive history. Consider your place in redemptive history. I love God asks his people this question, is now a time, is it a time to dwell in paneled houses? Now, what does that mean? Well, they were getting these nice, um, the nicest wood that they were receiving when they were moving back into Jerusalem, and they were taking the nicest wood, and they were just making their own houses better, like upgrading, like doing a little Chip and Joanna Gaines to their own stuff. While, his, while the temple was completely in ruins, and God's question is so prophetic, is now the time to do that? And he's not asking, what's your time... Um, in a national sense? Is it a time in, a national, in, in, in national history for you to do this, Israel? Is this a time in world history for you to do this, Israel? He's asking them this. Is this a time in the biblical history for you to do this? Here's Andrew Hill, who's a scholar on this book. He says, Haggai's four related speeches, there's four speeches that Haggai gives, they were designed to do this, to awaken the residents of post-exilic Jerusalem to the responsibilities, obligations, privileges, and promises of their covenant heritage. I think for us today, Haggai's giving us something similar. To awaken a post-exilic church here in America to the responsibilities, obligations, privileges, and promises to our covenant heritage of what we have now as the new covenant believers. You see, the people of Israel were put in this position 
to build a community life that would be able to withstand the transition to give God's people a future. And to do this primarily through the institution of the temple. That was what the people of Israel were here to do. When was the last time you asked this question? Like, what redemptive time am I living in? What time am I living in where the responsibilities, obligations, and privileges and promises, what, what, what has God given me in his narrative and his story to you? And God's question, is it a time for you to build your own little paneled house? Or is it a time to do something else with those resources? with the time you've been given, with the time that you're spending to build the paneled houses, he's asking them, is it the time to do that while my house lives in Is it that time? God is not inviting, let me be clear, God's not inviting the people of Israel to a construction project for religious uh, national profit. He's not inviting them just to a construction project. That reading removes the rich significance of the temple and what it was. God isn't inviting the people of Israel into a construction project for religious activity. He was inviting them into his mission. Here's how I know this. Because of the rich significance of what the temple was and him telling them to prioritize the temple is telling them to prioritize God's mission. God's mission is often, theologians talk about three, three things in kind of a triangle form that God has always been about his presence, his place, and his people. Now, this is from J. Ryan Lister, but other scholars just use other terms like God, land, and people, and stuff like that. I like alliteration because I'm a pastor. Presence, people, and place. That God, from the get-go, designed a world with these three things in harmony. If you notice, when God rests on the seventh day, it says that he saw it and he was very good. And scholars say the three elements that he, looked, that he rested in, that he dwelled in, when he finally rests on the seventh day of creation, he rests in the harmony of his presence with the people, the image bearers he creates in Genesis 1, in the place, Eden, that he experienced with. And, you know, so the whole, the whole message and narrative of the Bible is God inhabiting and resting and dwelling with his people through all sorts of means that he creates and various programs and laws and structures that he creates to dwell with his people. Because God, your creator, is so deeply passionate in his heart. He is love that he desires to inhabit the space that he created with the people that he created. And so you'll see in the next slide all the different ways that he has done this. In Eden, kind of through Adam, he then creates a family through Abraham. The tabernacle is kind of a temporary dwelling place where God can be with his people in his place. Then he gives the people land, and through the land, God meets with the people. He builds up a nation through the kings and through David in particular. And then he builds a temple through David's son Solomon. And that temple exists to where God can dwell with his people. And even when Solomon is initiating the temple, he asks the question, God, would you indeed dwell in this place? Because you're so high and holy and lifted up. But by your mercy and by your grace, would you dwell with us in this space and in this place? As the cross happens, it's really the kingdom of God that Jesus kind of speaks about the most, which is the place that we meet with God, the space that we meet with God by his grace and by his initiative through the cross. And so you and I, next slide, sit in this time in redemptive 
history, this time through the story of God, that the kingdom of God is breaking in through the church. The church is not the kingdom of God, but it is the first fruits of it. The first return on the investment of the kingdom was the local church being born. And the church is the community of Jesus working out the mission of God and partnering with the mission of God. That's why when Jesus addresses the anxiety of his age around like money, clothing, food, if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, he addresses all the anxieties, kind of like Haggai of like, man, you're you're harvesting much and, and you're getting back little. Jesus says, if you're worried about money, if you're worried about the modern pressures of life, Here's Jesus' own words from Matthew 6.33, but seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness, and all these things you're worried about will be added to you. The kingdom of God is God's presence and God's place and God's people. And God tells us, Jesus shows up on the earth and says, prioritize my mission and my kingdom of where my presence, people, and place exist. And the things and the pressures of your life will slowly be added in the sense that they'll they'll be relieved. There will be a All the concerns that you have, all the priorities that you might think you have, prioritize my kingdom and watch the other priorities fall into place. You know, it's so interesting. I was studying that word priorities that I've been saying a lot today. And um, that word, the etymology of that word, we used to not have the plural of it. Like that word used to just be priority. But then we created priorities because we just wanted to add more stuff but really, that word has a singularity in its etymology, in its like origin as a word. And I wonder, too, as Christians, how quickly God, this vague term we use, doesn't just become like the, the one thing we pursue, the one that we organize the rest of our life around, but becomes one of the many things that we are trying to do in the world When God tells his people, prioritize my kingdom, he's asking them to prioritize the way that God is dwelling on the earth. Israel's time in redemptive history, he told them, prioritize the temple to encounter me in the nation. In our time in redemptive history, God tells us to prioritize the local church to encounter God in his kingdom. The first way to really experience the kingdom of God, of like where God's dwelling with his people in his place is really any, a great church is a place where you're going to encounter God in his kingdom. This is why your New Testament is kind of obsessed with this. And Paul was one writer in particular who talked a lot about the church really not just being like the temple, but the church being the temple. Here's a couple of passages from Paul. In Jesus, you also, look at this, you and I in Jesus, we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's what God's doing at Imago. At Imago Day, God is building us together to be a dwelling place for his Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know, and the yous here I put are plural, those are important to know. It means like you all, we just don't have a good you know, um, plural you. Do you not know that you all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you all when you gather together? Because you are experiencing what God has meant you to experience. In 2 Corinthians 6.16, he puts it so plainly. We are the temple of the living God. Right after that verse, by the way, in second, you can look this up, 2 Corinthians. Right after that, he quotes 
one of the most quoted prophecies of the Old Testament, which is God promising this, I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will make my dwelling place among you. That's repeated in Exodus twice, Leviticus, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, many other prophets. I will make my dwelling place among you. The church is the place where we experience the sanctuary life of God. Not everything's perfect. Not everything's great. Not everything's the way you want it or the way I want it. But we are in the church to encounter God in the dwelling place he's building here today. Don't miss what your Bible is telling you. Here's the big so what after some of that theology. Your life, it's actually a part of a much larger narrative structure that at its heart reveals the living God actively and persistently arranging the circumstances of the world so that he might bring together his presence with his people in his place. Your life is not about your life. Your life is not about American history. Your life is not about national news. Your life is about the redemptive arc over thousands of years of God drawing people into a particular place so that he could be present with them to show him his salvation reality. That he has come in Christ to save us from the existential angst you feel when you're drinking from that paper straw. From the agony that you feel and the alienation you feel from other people and from God. That God is actually drawing his people back and he's using the imperfection of the church to bring us into a sanctuary, to bring us to the temple, to bring us to the dwelling place of God, to arrange your life in such a way that disregards that narrative that disregards the biblical redemptive history will ultimately leave you in various circumstances that will make you feel like you're drinking and not satisfied or harvesting and reaping so little. You won't sense the satisfaction your life was given to you to have with a creator, which is why Haggai gives the final consideration. Not just consider the returns on your investments and not just to consider where are you in redemptive history to finally consider the riches of prioritizing God's mission, the riches of prioritizing God's presence, people, and place? It says, this is what the Lord says, consider your ways. He says, go up to the hills and get the wood, not for your paneled houses, but build the house of the Lord, build the temple that I, the Lord, may take pleasure in it and I may be glorified, says the Lord. And the people, look at verse 13, skipping down a little bit. Haggai gives them this other message and it says this. God says, I am with you. And the Lord, it says, stirred up the spirit of the leaders. And then later it says, all the people, the remnant of the people, he stirred up the spirit of all the remnant of the people and everyone came and worked on the house of the Lord. Again, two chapters, shortest book in your Old Testament. Why? Because they heard the word and they responded to it. They prioritized the dwelling place of God. Why did the people act so quickly though? Keep that scripture up. Why did they activate so quickly? They realized God was offering a way to be present with him. He says, I'm with you. And if you do this work, you will receive my glory and, uh, and, and participate in my pleasure, in my good pleasure. 
It lets you into the very heart of God. This is what the entire Bible is about. The entire Bible is about God wooing, romancing his people into his presence. That's his mission. Look at Chris Wright. He says this, the whole Bible is itself a missional phenomenon. Mission is not just one of the list of things that the Bible happens to talk about, only a bit more urgently than some. Mission, God desiring to get his people, presence, and place together, it's what it's all about. It is not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world. Do you see the difference? Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission. The reason the church misses its priorities is when it realizes that actually it only is here to serve the mission of the presence, place, and people of God to be together. The church loses its way when it thinks it's the thing. But the church finds its way when it realizes it is the instrument of God for the thing God is doing. It's the, it's the albeit imperfect, albeit messy, but if this is God's mission, throw that next slide up, if this is really God's mission to have the presence, people, and place together, it makes sense why at Imago we talk about, next slide please, the whole gospel, the whole person, and the whole world. is because really we want to encounter God through the whole gospel. We want to be formed in the likeness of Jesus through our whole person, and we want to have the whole world experience that through a mission. And so really, the, the, the way we talk about it at, at Imago is just to remind ourselves that who we are as a church is serving a way larger narrative. And Imago will come and go. I mean, Lord willing, we want to be around here for a long time. But churches last sometimes a couple hundred years, you know. I mean, there's certain lifetimes that churches have. What do we want to be a part of? We want to be a part of the larger narrative. And in 2024, I've given you this language. Next slide of encounter, formation, and mission to remind us that we are a part of something much larger as a church, that actually God is actively building a sanctuary space for us, a space of dwelling. And to be a part of Imago Dei is to encounter God, is to be formed in the likeness of Jesus, and to be sent on mission. This is the way for us to prioritize what God has done in our life. And you know what? We're not the only church that does this. I mean, there are so many great churches that are doing the exact same thing. I'm just explicitly telling us, if we're a part of Imago and we're joining in on 2024, we are not going to pivot and change based off of the different cultural pressures that are approaching this country in 2024. Because we serve the biblical redemptive history and we serve the God, the author of the biblical redemptive history, that's bringing us together to say, this is my mission. And my mission doesn't change because of 2024 political situations. My mission doesn't change because of 21st century capitalist pressures. My mission doesn't change because of the difficulty in a city like Portland. My mission remains, and, and God is really, I think, through the prophet Haggai saying this, who's saying yes? Who's going to prioritize and is it a time to, to dwell in paneled homes, to do project self and create a nice little life for myself? Or is it a time to prioritize the community of Christ so that people might experience God's presence with other people in a particular place? You see, this is really the mission that God has for his church. And the way we all say yes to this, by the way, is through what we call covenant community. 
And we're doing two meetings in March. I'm just giving you a heads up on them so you can just kind of take a note down and put it in your phone. But the way that we say yes to the mission God has for us, for this little community here in this heart of Southeast Portland, is to be a part of covenant community. That's when we say we're all in. Yeah, we're, we're all in even though we know Imago's imperfections. Yeah, we're all in even though we know the challenges in the city of Portland. Yep, we're all in even though we know the challenges within Imago and the challenges we have with our neighbors here in the church. We still are all in because we prioritize the mission of God across the earth. And we are asking ourselves, what time is it in redemptive history? Not what time is it in American history? Not what time, now those are all important questions, but the prioritization of this question, what time am I living in as a follower of Jesus, is the question that interprets all the other questions. When we say we're all in, We're saying we're all in on taking the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world, to dedicate our lives in 2024 towards encounter, formation, and mission. And one of the great joys of coming here to Imago is seeing how many of you are doing this and to meet people here at Imago that are living this in a way that actually challenges and and, and really like challenges me brings me to a place of like asking the same questions I'm asking you today. And one of the people I've met, some of you know, uh, Richard and Jeannie Myrie. Richard Myrie, um, here they are, they're in Belize right now. Um, Richard uh, is, is really in one of the harder places with his cancer journey. He was diagnosed with cancer many years ago. He went into remission and it came back in a pretty tough way. And he's now in a, in a, in a place where... Um, his, his, his doctors are telling him that, that surgery is futile. He's really at the final stages. And um, this cancer is, is really wrecking his body, and it's awesome they're on this trip now. And he wrote me this, this card that I'm keeping in my Bible right here. And, um, and in it, he says, um, he, he has a few things to say, but the thing that stood out to me, and I asked him if I could share about his story because it moved me so much, was here's this man with doctors telling that surgery is going to be futile, and he writes this. Although I'm continuing to see answered prayers that beautiful things would result from my illness and that the gospel would be advanced, my prognosis naturally turns conversations in a spiritual direction. Praise God. What happens to a man where they, he can say something like that? Only someone who has received the mission of God with such a pure heart. You know, I have far better physical circumstances than Richard does right now. But I don't think I have as much spiritual clarity as he does. My physical body is in a better place, but I'm not sure that my spiritual heart is in the same position that it is in Richard's life. Because I don't view my life as how could it maybe advance the gospel? How could the well-being of my life advance the gospel? I'm not asking those questions, I realized, when I realized this man who's suffering from cancer is asking those questions. 
how might my terrible circumstances be in some ways advancing the mission of God where God's presence would be with his people in his place? And Richard gets excited about it. He gets excited about the ways God would use his difficulty, suffering, and circumstances to just move the word of God and the narrative of scripture an inch forward. I give you his story and submit you his life to honor him and to also tell you, perhaps that's a prophetic word to us too. Might God be telling you as you approach the communion tables today to prioritize his mission in a fresh way? I know he's telling me that through Haggai and through Richard. Might God be inviting us to prioritize his mission to not be working on our own paneled houses and our own little selves and our own small little groups of friends and family, but might he be calling us to the larger temple building project, which is in the church, the people of God, that God might dwell with his people in a particular place. And may Imago just be one of those places. And so as you come to the tables today, receive this good news, which is that the reason we prioritize God and his mission is because when we understand his mission, we understand his mission to be one of incredible self-sacrificial love. That God does not just tell you to prioritize him. Actually, what he does is he prioritizes you and tells you to join his mission. Because what is the cross? What is, this, what is this meal we're about to partake in? Communion is simply the realization, the shocking revelation that God's priority in this world is to be with you. So much so that he would actually put himself second, third, fourth to death on a cross, denigrated as a human being, broken body, shed blood, so that you might know you are the beloved of God. When you and I receive the gospel, we receive our stunning realization that God has prioritized us, God. Why did he do that? Because God is a God of great love, love in which you and I can only access through the mystery of the gospel. And so may you come forward to realize and to be stunned by the realization that God has prioritized you. The joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising his shame. And may we partake in this so it might fuel us to prioritize God's mission in a fresh way. Let me pray for us now. Lord, we need you. And we need to experience you and encounter you through the way you told us to. You told us through this communion meal that this is your body and this is your blood. So Father, I pray as we take it, we would receive it as such. Your broken body shed for us, broken for us. The fact that you would prioritize us only makes us more passionate to prioritize what you're doing in the world. So may whatever we have today uh, be brought forth to you, God. Help us, we pray and worship. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.